Crosspoint Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So good to be together in worship. What an amazing song that is. What a powerful name it is name of Jesus. He's who we're here for. He's the one that we preach his gospel because he is so worthy and he is the king of all. Amen. You know, on June 17th, 2015, there was this young man named Dylan Roof. He joined a group of people having a Bible study in a predominantly black church in Charleston, South Carolina. And then during that Bible study, Dylan Roof drew a gun and killed nine people. After his arrest, Dylan made it very, very clear that what he intended was to start a race war. That was his plan for that heinous crime that he committed. But the members of that church had a different vision of the future than a race war. They had a different vision of the future than what Dylan Roof wanted to incite. And it's so unbelievably powerful in their words. I'll quote them. Chris Singleton, whose mother was murdered in that church, said this, we will get through it, our church will get through it. He said, it's tough times. Honestly, my knees are a little weak right now, but I'm trying to stay as strong as I can while I press on. We are mourning right now, but I know we'll get through it. We already forgive him for what he's done. There's nothing but love from our side of the family. Another person said, I acknowledge that I am very angry, said Beth Ann Middleton Brown, who said her slain sister, Middleton Doctor, would have urged love. She taught me that we are the family that love built. Middleton Brown said, we have no room for hating, so we have to forgive. We forgive him. Alana Simmons, who lost her grandfather, the Reverend Daniel Simmons said, although my grandfather and the other victims died at the hands of hate, This is proof. Everyone's plea for your soul, speaking of Dylan, is proof that they lived in love and their legacies will live in love, so hate won't win, she said. I forgive you, said the daughter of Ethel Lance. You took something really precious from me. I will never talk to her ever again. I will never be able to hold her ever again, but I forgive you. This little church in Charleston, South Carolina, teaches us more about how citizens of Jesus' kingdom do battle than all the books and commentaries that have ever been written on this subject combined, amen? Because they went far past the words on the page, and in the face of unthinkable evil, they demonstrated and lived unbelievable love. This is how a citizen of the kingdom of Jesus does battle. We're continuing our citizen series, and this has been this series where we're taking this deep dive into what does it mean for those who follow Jesus to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven? What does it mean that we have a king? What does it mean that Jesus is our king and that he deserves our highest unrivaled loyalty and obedience? And so today, Jesus, I believe, is inviting us to look at scripture and to deeply consider that this war that his kingdom is waging against the the kingdom of the enemy, Satan and his demons. Jesus is inviting us to consider this war his kingdom is waging and the weapons that we choose to pick up and use. Every war has weapons. But what are the weapons that he has given to his church to use? And I'll warn you right now, they don't look anything like the weapons we see being used in the world right now. They look completely opposite. I wanna invite you to open up to Ephesians chapter six. We're gonna start at verse 10. This is the very end of the whole book of Ephesians and Paul is wrapping up um, this book and this is where he lands. This passage we're gonna read today is where he lands the plane. Talking about how Christians, how followers of Jesus wage war. And he starts this way in verse 10. Finally, be strong, or even better, be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his might. 
You see, Paul gives a charge to kingdom citizens to be strengthened in the strength of his might. This is a phrase he used in chapter one. And the phrase that he used in the strength of his might in chapter one is referring to Jesus's death, resurrection, and ascension to the right hand of God. Our strength, church, is in the fact that Jesus is king and he's reigning over all things. We don't have to frantically react to everything that's happening around in the world, do we? Why? Because Jesus is sovereign over it all. Do you feel out of control sometimes? Do you feel like things like are just slipping through your fingers and you're not in control? Do you feel that way? Good. Because you're not in control. I'm not in control. If we were, he wouldn't be. Jesus is sovereign. He is in control and he is ruling all things from heaven, even in the darkest moments. And notice something, that Paul is not denying Christians' power or access to power or telling them to be weak. No, 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 no. Paul is telling Christians, you are to be strong and strengthened. He's not portraying a Christian life that is powerless and passive. He actually calls us to live a life of power, of being strengthened. But Paul defines power so differently than our typical cultural conceptions, doesn't he? It's not the same kind of power. It's not the same use of power. In fact, in Paul's other writings, especially 1 Corinthians chapter one, he is very aware that his gospel and his way of life seem very weak and very foolish to the world watching him. And admittedly, the definition of power we see in Scripture is very upside down. It is not going along with the definition of power that we've seen growing up our whole lives, right? We've seen power demonstrated over and over and over. We've seen people trying to one-up each other our whole lives. We've seen people trying to have influence and get what they want through certain worldly means. And that has defined what power means for us, but that is not at all how Scripture defines power. And so scripture defines power in a very upside down way, so much so that even Christians like you and I, if you are a Christian, may be tempted to explain it away or find another way to strength. Oh, the Bible says, you know, love your enemies, but it doesn't really mean that. But before Paul describes this upside down power of kingdom citizens, he clearly defines who this power is to be exercised against who the real enemy is. Check this out. Verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of your neighbor. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the politician you hate. So you may be, is, no. So that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That just means human beings. We do not wrestle against human beings, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, in this surprising left turn, Paul does not define your enemy as the human beings around you who are bringing misery into your life or those who oppose you, or those who set themselves up as your enemy. Paul is not defining the enemy as them. Rather, it is the devil and his entourage of evil spiritual beings, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers of darkness. These are the enemy. If you say, I'm not sure I believe in that, open your eyes and look at the world around you. You don't believe in spiritual evil? It is real, and it is working right now as you and I speak. Do we have human enemies in this world? Yeah, we we do, or else Jesus' words to love your enemies would be pointless and meaningless. We do have people who set themselves up as our enemies, act like our enemies, and are our enemies. Are there evil people in this world? Yes, obviously, Are there situations where evil people must be resisted? 
Yes. But they are never the ultimate enemy, are they? I read this heartbreaking article on these children's soldiers of Sudan. In Sudan, there's these warring factions, and the factions will abduct children, brainwash them, teach them warfare, give them a gun, and make them go out into the battlefield and fight adults. And how they do it is they abduct these children, but then the military officers and others will brainwash them into thinking that the reason they were abducted and the reason they were torn apart from their family was because of the enemy they're fighting. It's their fault. Those people we're gonna meet in battle tomorrow, they're the ones who did this to you. And so these children become ferocious warriors because they're not just fighting for our side, they're fighting the people that they think caused them so much pain. They've been lied to, they've been brainwashed, and they're being used by evil powers to do evil things, but they're under duress. They don't understand reality. I try to imagine myself on one side of the battle line seeing children with AK-47s coming at me. Going to war, what do you shoot back at a kid? It is so natural for us to attack the attackers that we can see with our eyes. The people who come at us and who attack us and who we are against or feel that we are against. It's so easy to think they're the true enemy. But what if the attackers are themselves under duress? What if the people in this world that we feel so opposed to or feel that they oppose us, what if they've been abducted lied to, brainwashed. I don't think that the people in this world who seem to be our enemies are very different at all than those child soldiers in Sudan because our enemy has abducted, brainwashed, lied to them. And so they may be attacking us. They may be seeming to be our enemies, but are they the real enemy? No, the enemy is the one who's held them captive. So do we shoot back at them, someone under duress? So we cannot view people as the ultimate enemy. What does a life of resisting evil look like then if people aren't the enemy? How do we wage war against our true enemy, the devil? Well, Paul tells us, verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you, pause, you. In English, that can be singular or plural. I can say you or I can say you. In this language that it was written in, this is plural. All the pronouns, all of the verbs that have uh, this case built into it are all plural. He's saying, you all, together, as the church, put on the whole armor of God. Now, I know some people who do this practice daily. They wake up and they pray and put on the full armor of God in their heart and their mind with the Lord. And that's a wonderful thing individually. But it's not just that. Paul is telling us that we as the church, y'all, together, ought to be arming ourselves with the armor of God as one body in unity together. The church puts on the army of God, armor of God together, not as an individual, but as a group. And he goes on and says, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having, fast, having fastened the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery 
of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So church, here is your list of weapons. I'm just gonna list them out. Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace. Whoever heard of fighting a war with peace? Faith, salvation, the word of God, prayer, perseverance, proclaiming the gospel. That is your list of weapons. And I hear some of your brains saying, but wait, that, that's the battle plan? Righteousness and peace and faith and prayer and perseverance? Where's the good stuff? Where's the powerful stuff? Where's like the big weapons, the big guns? Where's the machine gun of vicious rhetoric? And where's the bulletproof vest of self-promotion? And where's the body armor of controlling the narrative? Where's the roadside bomb of social media one-liners and mic drops? Where's the nuclear suitcase of character assassination? Those are the weapons I'm used to winning with. Those are the weapons that I see people overcome with. Those are the weapons that I see people using and being successful. Friends, those are weapons of this world, forged by our enemy, and they have great destructive power. But the citizens of Jesus' kingdom have not been issued those weapons. In fact, we are forbidden to use those weapons. People who use these weapons have been deceived into thinking that the great battle that is being waged is a battle between people, between flesh and blood. But Paul says that's not what the battle is. And we fail to realize that a biblical worldview does not place the main battle here between beings of flesh and blood, but rather in the spiritual realm where God is fighting his enemies. That's where the real battle is, and that's where we must do battle in the way that our king does battle and has done battle. And yet, here is a great dilemma and, and, and temptation for the church today. Oh, listen up, church. This is a temptation you and I are gonna face every single day, even as the people of God who have the Holy Spirit living in us. This is the dilemma and temptation for us. It seems to me, and I'll, I'll be honest, frankly, to most of the pastor friends that I have at other churches, we've seen so much, especially in the last year. And it seems that even we in the church have embraced the use of, of the enemy's weapons, myself included. We've resorted to anger and disunity, verbal violence against other people, tearing down people made in the image of God with our words, dividing from people over secondary issues. It's been, it has been devastating to watch. Both in the church and in my own life. But when we use the enemy's weapons, we will always accomplish the enemy's purposes. Wins for the enemy rather than for Jesus. The enemy's weapons cannot be used to defeat him. Read what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7 through 8. Just listen to this. Paul says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who slows, sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We cannot think that if we do battle in Satan's way that we can have kingdom victories. It's a lie. Kyle Strobel, he's one of the authors of a book that I've been reading uh, called The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb, says this. This will be the great temptation for us, church, what if I can wield worldly power for the kingdom of God? 
And he says, what you sow in the flesh, you will reap in the flesh. You may get quick results, but you have attempted to wield the demonic for the sake of the gospel. That is startling. When I use and pick up a weapon forged and invented by the enemy, I am attempting to wield the demonic for the sake of the gospel. How foolish is it of us to think we can wield the demonic and win for the kingdom of Jesus? Use the methods and patterns and ways and strategies of the world thinking that somehow we will win for Jesus' kingdom. How foolish, how arrogant, how infantile. Many Christians, and I thoroughly include myself in this church, I, I love preaching, but I hate preaching. Because when I preach, the whole week before is nothing but conviction and conviction and conviction. And I've been so convicted this week by my words and my actions and my thoughts about other people. But I gotta say it anyways. This is me and you both. Many Christians have been deceived into thinking that as long as the outcome of what we do or the outcome of what we support is good, good, that the method of getting there isn't as important or can be excused. But Paul warns us very clearly that if our method is of the enemy's kingdom, the outcome will be the enemy's win. Corruption. How many of us have made our case for truth, made our case and our argument of something we want someone to believe or we want to defeat someone else's argument? How many of us have made our case for what we think truth is in divisive and destructive words? Thinking that we are doing God and truth a favor by winning the argument at all costs, by powering up and, and speaking words of destruction towards someone else. How many of us in the church have favored proving our own opinions right concerning secondary doctrinal issues over being unified? As if church unity is not a core doctrine of Scripture, let me tell you, church unity is a core doctrine of Scripture. The book of Romans, this doctrinal tome that we have and we revere and we teach salvation by grace through faith alone, that book is about salvation, but, but really, if you read the book, it's about unity in the church. Jews, Gentiles, stop dividing. And we'll take the salvation by grace, but we'll forget the unity because that's not my favorite doctrine. And I don't want to do the hard work. But that's one of the things Romans is about. We, we, we pick and choose. How many of us, this one hurts, brace yourself, how many of us have excused, applauded, or dare I say admired the worldly, demonic methods of our favored political candidate because we so desire the end outcome that they promise and never fulfill, by the way? How many of us have excused, justified, or even admired someone in the public eye, using demonic, horrible, destructive methods to get their end goal. And because we want the same end goal, we excuse it or even admire it. How many of us have fallen into that in the last few years? Somehow, our culture has decided, and even within Christian culture, has decided that the vengeful bully is the hero. How many of us have slandered a fellow human being made in the image of God just because they disagree with us, annoy us, or have hurt us? I did that this week. Jesus, our King, says to us that all of scripture hangs on two commandments. You can boil all of the Old Testament scripture, Jesus is saying, down into two commandments. All of that rich theology and doctrine boiled down to two commandments. Loving God and loving my neighbor. This is the highest level of doctrine. Love. Love. 
is the highest level of doctrine. Our problem is not that we don't have access to good doctrine. Our problem is that we refuse to obey it. The church needed a reformation of doctrine in the 16th century, 500 years ago. But perhaps we need a reformation of obedience in the 21st century. That the church would actually live by the gospel of grace that we so eloquently articulated in doctrinal statements 500 years ago. That we would be known first by our love for each other as King Jesus commanded us 2,000 years ago. Obeying the gospel of Jesus means that we refuse to pick up the weapons of pride, hate, character assassination, guilt by association, refusing to listen, refusing to consider that my way of thinking is the only way of thinking, slander, harsh reactions, divisiveness. Obeying the gospel of Jesus means we do not pick those weapons up. Rather, the weapons of the citizen of heaven are these. Love, faith, turning the other cheek, blessing those who curse you, speaking truth in love, peacemaking, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, and lots and lots of prayer. And I know that some would say, but Travis, that sounds so weak. That sounds like giving up, not fighting. That sounds like surrender, faith and peace and Love, it's so gushy and touchy-feely. It sounds weak. And I believe that Jesus, our King, would gently but firmly say to us, friends, you are loved, but you sound like a person who doesn't know the power of God. If you think that love and peace and prayer sound weak, then you've drunk the Kool-Aid of our culture with the rest of the world. You've, you've, you've been deceived to think that true power is found in fighting and dominating and destruction, power plays and tearing down people who have been made in the image of God. If that's what you think true power is, then you do not understand the cross. If I think that's what true power is, and if I operate as thinking that is true power, I don't understand the cross and the message of the cross. Church, I've actually had this very sad kind of conversation with Christians who love Jesus and who want to follow Jesus, but when I expressed our belief that the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, that is how we are to walk in this life. When I expressed those values straight from Matthew 5, how we ought to be responding to the difficulties we find ourselves in and the world we're surrounded by, what I've heard back at times is, yeah, 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 that, that, that's the nice Jesus stuff, and it's all well and good. But what about the warrior Jesus stuff? like when he turned over the tables. Let's talk about turning over tables. I wanna ask you two questions. When Jesus turned over the tables, where did he turn over the tables? You can answer. The temple. Church. Second question. Who was he so vehemently railing against when he turned the tables over? religious people who by their actions were making a mockery of worship and edging out Gentiles from the only place in the temple courts they should worship. So if we, as a bunch of Christians, want to invoke Jesus' name and talk about him turning over tables and that's what we ought to do, then we better buck up because when Jesus turns over tables, he does it first in the church. When Jesus deals with legalistic, stuck-up religious people, he turns over tables. But when he deals with a lost, deceived, enslaved, dying world, he dies on a cross. I don't recall Jesus ever inviting me to follow him in turning over tables. Do you? But I do recall him inviting me to follow him to take up my cross and follow him. I recall that. 
Our culture has lost the vision of how truly powerful sacrificial love is. True power and heroism looks like Jesus dying on the cross. That's what a real hero is, church. That's what real power is. Someone who can lay their life down, surrendering it, sacrificing for another when they're the ones doing it to him and still say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're under duress. That's what real power looks like. Have you drunk the Kool-Aid that real power looks like something different than that? I know I have. So many times. Christians are not called to a powerless life. We are called to a life of power, but power that is forged, defined, and governed by love. In his autobiography, Martin Luther King Jr. wrote this. One of the great problems of history is that the concepts of love and power have usually been contrasted as polar opposites so that love is identified with a resignation of power and power with a denial of love. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive and that love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. Justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. Martin Luther King Jr. believed this, and so have many other people who have nonviolently resisted evil in this world. And it's this, that sacrificial love in the way of Jesus is not just a defensive weapon. It is an offensive, offensive weapon. Sacrificing, laying down the ownership of your rights and giving of yourself for another person is the most brave, difficult, and heroic task that a human being can do. When we resist evil by responding in love, we are not being doormats. Don't ever say that again. We're being loyal to our king. Do you know what was so powerful about the civil rights movement in the 60s? Their nonviolent, loving reaction exposed racism and hate for what it was and showed it to be even more evil than people had recognized. The fact that they didn't strike back, the fact that they allowed themselves to be abused, showed evil for what it is. It's not just defensive. Love is an offensive weapon that holds in check the evil in this world and exposes it for what it is. Our response of love, by contrast, exposes evil for what it is. And when I respond with the weapons of love, not only am I honoring Jesus my king, but I'm introducing real accountability to the other person. And I'm also demonstrating to them that there is another way to be. Church, responding in love is not doormat. It's exposing evil. And it's holding accountable. And it's giving someone an opportunity to see Christ and be saved and change. That's powerful. Church, I beg you not to believe the lie that the weapons of love, faith, sacrifice, and prayer are weak. They're immeasurably powerful. They may be appearing to be weak in the eyes of this world, but that's because we're living in the upside down. Now, are there moments and chapters when people must physically stand and resist evil in this world? Yes. Sadly, it's true. Are there moments in history when villains and predators must be forcefully and physically stopped? Yes. If someone broke into my home and was going to hurt my family, you better bet I would stand in the way and try to stop it. But that is not the normative Christian experience. That is not the normative life of a Christian. The normative life of a Christian is the way of the cross, the way of sacrificial love. And even in those moments when we must forcibly resist evil, that our hearts would say, I want to do this governed by love for those I'm trying to protect. Not out of vengeance, not out of hate, 
When we choose to pick up and use the weapons of the enemy, we are choosing a life of weakness, of cowardice, and winning battles for the enemy. In spiritual battle, I think the reality is this. We don't wield the weapons. The weapons wield us. If any of you are Lord of the Rings fans, you'll know what I'm about to quote right now. Frodo says to Gandalf, having this ring of power, but I have so little of any of, I have so little, but I have so little of any of these things. You, I don't know what that means. I think I misquoted that. I have need of so little, whatever. You are so powerful and wise. Will you not take the ring, Gandalf? No, cried Gandalf, springing to his feet. With that power, I should have power too great and terrible, and over me the ring would gain a power still greater and more deadly. His eyes flashed, and his face was lit as with by fire. Do not tempt me. Don't tempt me, Frodo. For I do not wish to become like the dark Lord himself. Yet the way of the ring to my heart is by pity, pity for weakness and the desire of strength to do good. Do not tempt me. I dare not take it, not even to keep it safe, unused. The wish to wield it would be too great for my strength. This is fiction, but it is so true. Picking up a weapon forged by our enemy is only giving our enemy the opportunity to wield us for his own purposes. If I pick up a weapon of the enemy forged in wickedness and hatred, then I am in essence allowing my life, my story, my resources, and my words to be wielded for the sake of Satan's kingdom. But if I pick up a weapon of the kingdom that has been forged by Jesus for the sake of the gospel, I am in essence allowing my life, my story, my resources, and my words to be wielded for the sake of Jesus's kingdom. Church, our weaponry must represent our citizenship. Our manner must match our mission. Love is the measure by which weapons of Jesus' kingdom are evaluated. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, love God and love my neighbor. So how do I live this way? Anyone else asking that question? How in the world do I actually do this? Because let's just be honest, in the moment, when something's going down, it is really, really hard to represent Jesus, isn't it? When someone's verbally attacking you, is it your flinch reaction to be like, oh, bless you? <laughs> no, mine neither. But how do we do this? How do I choose the weapons of Jesus' kingdom in the moment? It's so very difficult to do this, and it isn't natural, but I, I wanna just tell you first, before I give you some, some thoughts, I'm gonna tell you that the, the real goal here is that Jesus would transform my heart first. Not just behavioral change, but that my heart would change, that I would have the kind of heart that says, I want to respond in love. I want to respond to my enemies and those who hurt me with blessing. It's hard, but I want to. God isn't just about behavior modification. God is about changing our hearts. And so we must be praying every single day that God would make us that kind of person. He would supernaturally and daily transform our minds and our hearts, that he would detox us from our broken view of power and replace it with his view of power, which is forged and governed by love. So daily, we must be surrendering to Jesus and saying, change how I think, change how I feel. I cannot do that, but I want it to be natural for my response to be love. That's what we must be doing every single day. But in the moment when the heat is on, what is a behavioral response that corresponds with the heart change that I'm seeking? I wanna tell you this, church. Write this down if you can. Respond in the opposite Spirit. Respond in the opposite spirit. Did someone speak evil about you? Respond in the opposite spirit. Bless them with your words. But Travis, that, I know. I know. Did someone assume the worst of you? Do everything you can to assume the best 
of them. Is someone getting loud with you? Get quiet with them. Is someone taking from you? Then be generous to another. Did someone deny you your rights? Fight to protect theirs. Did someone harshly and forcefully express a view or belief that is at odds with everything you believe? Well, respond in the opposite spirit. Listen. Be curious about what they think. Be quick to listen and hear them out. And then let the Holy Spirit guide your very slow, thoughtful, and sometimes silent response. This is precisely what God calls us to in Romans 12. Starting at verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not become over. Do not be overcome with by evil, but overcome evil with good. If you're like me, after reading a passage like that, you have a ton of yeah buts in your mind. Yeah, but what about in this situation? Yeah, but what about when this person did this? Yeah, guys, we can yeah but scripture all we want. It still says what it says. The words on this page are not unclear. It's not an issue of yeah, but it's an issue of will I obey? Will I actually obey my king? I'm so cut to the heart on this. I am so convicted about this. Church, we can do this. Not us, but the Holy Spirit living in us can accomplish this. We can become the kind of people who preach the gospel with our words and validate that what we are saying is true because of our love. And and the story we tell and the gospel we preach isn't a nameless force for good. This sermon is not about just do good, just do good things. That is not what this sermon is. Our goodness and our love has a name. What's his name? Jesus. We must put a name to the goodness, love, and turning of the cheek and responding to evil with good. We must put a name on it. The author of the one, the author who created that way of living, the author who designed the weapons of love, Jesus Christ, that the gospel would be preached by our unwillingness to wage war like the world does. We must put a name on it. Church, we will not be perfect. And when we aren't, we need each other, both for accountability and for encouragement because we're gonna feel pretty bad about some of the things we do in this world. Our king has called us to a life of obedience, to the law of love that he not only told us about, but he showed us. And my prayer is that a reformation of obedience to our king his way, and his weapons would start here in my heart and in yours at Cross Point Community Church here in Modesto. Our world, the Christian world, needs a reformation of obedience. What if it started here? Because the people of this church, the people sitting in this room, people who call this place home and family, what if we actually obeyed the gospel that says, love your enemy, do good to those who hate you, Turn the other cheek. Never avenge yourself. What if we lived that way and stopped making excuses 
for why we won't. What if we actually did that? What a change that could be for our, our city and for our state, for our country and our world. This is how the gospel goes forth. It's when the people of God, Christians, are known by their love. We had planned on doing an ending song today, but we're not gonna do that because I think we need some time to let Jesus say something to us. We don't get very many uh, opportunities in this world we live in just to have complete silence. How many of you have silence all the time in your life? I don't. I have six children. Silence is not a normal part of my life. and It's beautiful, but we need some silence right now because we need to ask Jesus to speak honestly to us. So I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. And in this silence, I would just encourage you, whether you're here or whether you're at home, to allow Jesus to take stock of your life and to be brutally, gently, but brutally honest with you about how you're doing with the kind of weapons you pick up and use. Are you using the weapons forged by the enemy that will win battles for him or are you using and picking up weapons of love and faith and righteousness and prayer and turning the other cheek and peace that Jesus has forged and are you using those? Are you operating in the same spirit or are you operating in the opposite spirit that Jesus showed us? So take a moment just in the quiet and start that conversation with Jesus and ask him, how am I doing? Please tell me truth and listen to what he has to say. We'll be silent just for a few minutes. Talk to Jesus now. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into the temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I would encourage you to continue this conversation with Jesus that you just started. Don't let it fall off because you go walk to your car and get into a fight with your wife. Don't let it fall off because you've got something busy going on this afternoon. That's okay, but please pick it up. Jesus 
wants to continue the conversation with you. He wants to keep changing your heart. I want to invite the prayer team to come on down right now. If you need some prayer encouragement or you just need someone to talk to you because something struck you today, you want to confess something or you just want help with something or some prayer encouragement, please come on down. And if you realize this morning that Jesus by how we described him as the Lord of love who loves and laid his life down for all humanity. If you realize that you have not yet surrendered to him and you wanna give your life to him and be saved by him this morning, we'd invite you to come down. And one of the people up here would love to encourage you and, and invite you to, to surrender to Jesus. Also, if you're at home, if you need some prayer, we'd love to follow up with you. Go ahead and text CP Prayer to 209-521-0181. We'd love to follow up with you later today. Church, I love you. I'm glad we love each other. And I just wanna encourage you, this church is full of so many amazing people who have set the example for me personally. I wanna encourage you. So many of you have set the example for me of what I just talked about today. You've been doing it for decades. And I've watched you and I've said, uh, that's nice, but that's not the way to go. And finally, I'm waking up and saying, I wanna be like them but I wanna be like Jesus. Thank you for being the kind of church that is full of people who are like that. And for the rest of us who are struggling a little bit more on that, we have the Holy Spirit living in us, amen? We can become the kind of people Jesus asked us to do. We can start the reformation of obedience that God is calling his church to today. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you feel inspired and moved by what God is doing here at Crosspoint.